Hey NRL fans, Phil Pryor here. Today's episode of my podcast, The Splash, features the two voices you're about to listen to, Matt Russell, Warren Smith and myself, discuss Andrew Bogut's move to the NBL. That's The Splash Podcast. Now time for Take Me Now, I Have Seen It All. Look, I've got a big list in front of me, and as Rugby League is the game that just keeps on giving, I know there is no way we're going to get through all the topics to talk about in the next 45 minutes or so of You Can Take Me Now. I have seen it all. Hi, everybody. Warren Smith along with Matt Russell, as usual. A massive weekend uh, off the field and on the field. On the field, I called the Warriors and Dragons, Matty, back on Friday night, and we mentioned maybe last week or the week before with the Warriors potentially being the sleeping giant, finally being awoken in the NRL, and after they beat the Dragons and played such a good game of footy against them as well, they are very much the real deal and one of the top two or three picks, I think, right now to win the Premiership. I really enjoyed watching them on Friday night. Was uh, Hello to you. And with Lara Pitt a few minutes ago, I was having a look at Isaac Luke and, and what he's done this season compared with his first two seasons at the Warriors. Here's a stat that jumped out to us. Uh, last season, he ran the ball 10 times in a game, just once. Just once. So far, through seven rounds of 2018, he's done it three times already. Wow. So, you know, there is a lot more in terms of the metres he's covered and what else he's bringing to the team. But there's an indication straight away how Isaac Luke is different to last season. And as a result, the Warriors are much different to last season. I mean, it's almost as if he's off contract or something. Who would have thought? Oh, that's right. He's off contract. (laughs) Uh, I I had another story relayed to me about uh, Sam Burgess going up and just tapping him on the side as they moved past each other after a game. And Sam relayed that straight away there was none of the puppy fat. There was no flab there, as there might have been a little bit of in in past seasons. He is much fitter, Isaac, and playing much better. And yes, as we've outlined already, in the final year of his three-year deal. Is he available for New South Wales? (laughs) We're looking for a hooker. We're looking for a halfback still. Um, Despite all this positive talk about New South Wales ahead of the Origin Series this year, there's still some gaps to be filled in that Blues team, and Isaac Luke would be just a, a lay-down mazare to be the hooker. Unfortunately, about 45 tests for New Zealand probably yeah, rule him out. Might rule him out, unfortunately. <laughs> Although, uh, would put him on Queensland's radar, surely. Oh, there's no... Because <laughs> that's in Queensland. <laughs> of course it as is. As Dennis Carnahan has told us for a number of years. Uh, mm. What uh, really sparked your interest over the weekend? I loved going to Central Coast Stadium. I think it's a beautiful ground anyway. It's... Even better with 15,000 people there. In the past, they've attracted 20. Uh, South Canberra getting 15, so there was a good atmosphere, a sunny afternoon, a fantastic surface. As a result, we saw plenty of points scored. The 63rd Premiership game played in the Central Coast Stadium, the first for this year, and I'm glad we're going back there once more. this season, the Roosters will take a game back there against the Gold Coast. And then Scully Park was in Tamworth, 10,000 fans. How good to have the atmosphere coming through the television at you. I watched this on my device and I just couldn't help but be carried away with a crowd of 10,000 as opposed to 10,000 at another venue where you can hear crickets and the tumbleweeds blowing through. I think it's fantastic and I love seeing rugby league taken to regional centres. Yeah, it was only about maybe 2,500 fans more than saw the City Country game up there a couple of years ago. 
But it, watching it on Saturday night, it seemed as though the stadium was so much bigger than what I remembered from that game back in 2016. The full, uh, the, the hill rather, was full. It looked a bit like Leichhardt Oval with that sort of look. Plenty of Tigers mm. fans quite obviously up there. People sitting on their roofs on the street across the road. It's a pretty cool spot. A great facility. The playing surface was the old billiard table. It was fantastic. And the game was a cracker with Newcastle jumping out, the Tigers heading back early in the second half, and then the Knights scoring at the death through SKD, um, who mixed his form up again in the one game, as he can do, but he can be a match winner, and he certainly was on Saturday night. Last week was, he said, if you're going to raise a problem in rugby league, you've got to come up with the answer as well. Well, the 6 o'clock Friday kickoffs pose a problem, if it's in Sydney especially, given peak hour and the race to get from work to the venue, why not make the 6 o'clock Friday game regularly a regional venture? But how does that work? Because I've got no doubt that at Tamworth there were a lot of Tigers fans who made their way up there. There would have been Newcastle fans also made their way up there and formed a fair portion of the crowd. So it's one thing to do that on Saturday, Saturday night, but if you were playing a game there, and I know it's been proposed by Phil Rothfield in the Daily Telegraph uh, today, if you had a Thursday night game, you wouldn't get the same crowd. No. And I don't think you would on a 6 o'clock Friday also. It's a good point. It's a bit like North Queensland. They always want to play at 7.30 on a Saturday night because they have people come from a long way around uh, Townsville, you know, some of them two, three, four hours to watch the Cowboys play. So if you take them out of that spot, then it makes it a lot harder to get fans there. I think it only works on a Saturday night. It doesn't help the 6 o'clock slot if you're playing... Dogs, roosters on a Thursday night, perhaps, mm. or whoever it might be, in a big stadium in Sydney at six o'clock on a Friday. But there's a lot to be said for taking a game, you know, every second week or so to a country venue. Yeah, and I would like to see some research done. I'm sure West Tigers would have done it. How many of the fans on Saturday night had actually packed up the car and driven from Sydney or elsewhere, or were a lot of rugby league fans just coming in from surrounding districts to Tamworth? Because if that's the case, maybe you could explore the 6 o'clock Friday slot more along those lines. But it is a valid point. You've got to give people time to travel there if, in fact, that's where the majority of the 10,000 were coming from, travelling from Sydney or some other big centre. Yeah, I I would have said maybe, you know, 40% of the crowd, something like that, 4,000, 4,500, maybe have travelled from whatever distance to get there. Obviously, in Tamworth itself, I'm not sure exactly of the population of Tamworth right now, driven through there many times on the way to Brisbane. So it's Mm. a fair-sized town. Well, then we should give the league a, a wrap because they've scheduled games in Toowoomba, in Gladstone. Uh, we've just gone to Tamworth. We're off to Carrington Park Bathurst on a Saturday coming up. So mm-hmm. they seem to have scheduled these games where they have drawn a crowd. And we haven't really had a regional flop yet in terms of atmosphere and crowd, have we? No, and the weather's been sensational. I mean, yesterday at Shark Park, you'd have sworn it was you know late yeah. January. It was a beautiful early evening. I heard you say that in commentary, and uh, you were spot on. I was outside listening, watching on my phone, raking the leaves, thinking, it is nice out here, Was It's the end of April. <laughs> unbelievable. Um, speaking of unbelievable, on the northern beaches, another beautiful part of the world, they've got their issues, haven't they? Um, I think it's now the Battle of Hastings. Mm. It should be known as over there, the Seagulls, belted yesterday by the Eels, 44 points to 10. They were flat-out awful. And it's a club, I think it's probably fair to say at the moment, a club at the crossroads. Because it all starts at the top. They've had the salary cap dramas. Uh, Scott Penn and Trent Barrett, the coach, were given warnings by the league. That's curious in hindsight in itself, isn't it, given 
the level of the the, um, the breaches in regards to the salary cap and the way it was working over there with players being paid in excess of what their um, their contracts um, said supposedly, and we're going to hear and see more about that down the track because I think the league is, well, they've promised anyway, they are going to release the full findings of the breaches at Manly in the in the area of transparency to try and just say, say to everybody, because there's so many questions still hanging over what happened as far as the salary cap at Manly is concerned. People want to know what's happening. They will release those findings at some stage in the next month or so, let's hope, so we can actually know and be better you know, informed ourselves as to how it all played out. But off the back of that, you've got the Jackson-Hastings thing. I've never seen so much written about somebody we actually know so little about. And, the, and so we know so little about Jackson-Hastings' supposed problems. And it's almost like there's this collusion across everybody you talk to in the NRL to a man. They'll all go, oh, he's got some issues, that kid. There's problems there. He's you know a bit different, blah, blah, blah. But nobody, not one person, can pinpoint exactly what the problem with him is. And it's the same from Manly. We hear that he's not worthy of playing in the NRL because he doesn't fit in with the team ethos and culturally. Interestingly enough, though, he's deemed worthy of playing for the Blacktown workers. In any other workplace, if you had a top-tier team and a second-tier team, if it was, say, Fox Sports, and one of the commentary team had some personal issues away from their work and it was affecting their work and they weren't deemed worthy of fulfilling their normal workplace commitments, whether it be calling an NRL game, our bosses wouldn't say, that's okay, you can go back and call a New South Wales Cup game. No. Or a Queensland Cup game. Or a, or a 20s game. Or a whatever game. If you're not fit to work, you're not fit to work. So how is it benefiting Jackson Hastings by going back and playing for the Blacktown workers if he needs counselling, and if this is what they've deemed, if he needs help, he needs help to get through that without the pressures of trying to play football and get himself back into the NRL team, <clears throat> team rather, where there is obviously problems. Well, I agree, was and, and overall, without any knowledge of what has gone on, without much knowledge, I feel sorry for Jackson Hastings. Imagine having for your sure. face on the front page of the Sunday Telegraph. By his own admission, he's trying to be a better man, which says to me that, yes, I have had issues at other clubs. There have been some problems, but I am determined to improve and, and sort them out and live a good rugby league life. Now, if it is because he doesn't like the gags that Manly's culture has had over the last few years, then shouldn't some of the other Manly players and Manly senior figures say, boys, pull your head in. Jackson doesn't like that. We're trying to get him to be the best he can be. You know, stir that bloke or go hard at that bloke because he handles it. He thrives on it. So my overriding emotion at the moment is sorrow for Jackson Hastings. And everything I read on the weekend, I I found myself more and more in favour of Jackson Hastings. He said he's going to play as hard as he can for Blackdown. He's determined to resuscitate his NRL career. What is really intriguing is that Trent Barrett has said he's going to play for Blacktown for the rest of the season. So Trent has said, that's my decision. Subsequently, it's been revealed that some of Trent's playing roster remaining at NRL level had actually been texting and supporting Jackson Hastings. So the only conclusion you can draw there is that it's a squad divided around the Jackson Hastings issue. 
Also sprinkling the uncertainty into it is that Jackson's flare-up happened with Daly Cherry Evans, who himself carries some baggage to the table when it comes to is he easy to get along with, is he easy to play with. So it is a murky world at Manly at the moment, and I fear for a bloke I have a lot of respect and time for in Trent Barrett, who I think is a, a country boy at heart, whose qualities ooze that. He gives everyone a chance, and he's a good man manager. So it's a prickly situation for a good bloke and a team that needs some real uh, level uh, solidarity at the moment. Yeah, you're right, because Trent Barrett, I think, I get the feeling that Trent Barrett keeps having to throw himself on these grenades. And every second week, there's another grenade that gets lobbed into the Sea Eagles HQ, most of them by their own doing. Bob Fulton is no longer welcome in the NRL as far as holding a position with a club, an immortal of the game, in the eyes of the NRL administration because of what happened with the salary cap breaches. So off the back of that, you've got this, I don't know, it's a power vacuum, but there's a lack of leadership there at an admin level, and you've got to throw Scott Penn, the owner, into this. This is all on his watch. Mm. He owns a portion of the club. You've got to be more hands-on because all this is imploding underneath you. I mean, what is what is going on that, you know, you can have this situation where there's this, you know, almost workplace bullying, which goes on for a certain amount of time, just geeing Jackson Hastings up, that it gets to the point that he does respond and there's a blow-up. And then we don't know exactly what's happened, but we know something's happened because they're, they're in a strip club in Gladstone and there's a blue on. You know, there's so much happening where you sort of walk in. If you walked in as a complete stranger, if you were just doing, you know, Jeff Toovey's, there's got to be an investigation. If, as a consultant, you walked into the Manly Club right now and was doing an investigation, Toove style, you'd be going, well, my God, you've got so many issues here on so many levels. Where's Where's the governance as far as what transpires? And, you know, there is this culture, I think, of these pranks and the like, at Manly, I remember back in 2011 when they won the Premiership, the boys, whoever it was, put a couple of ducks into Des Hasler's office and when Des, Des arrived for work the next morning, well, the ducks were there and there was duck poo <laughs> over everything and Des didn't see the humour in it. No. And it sounds like something similar. I heard a story about oil on the car or something of Jackson Hastings. Whatever it is, you know, things have got out of hand over there in a big, big way, haven't they? I'm not a goody two-shoes. I love gags and practical jokes. Sure, but but you pick your mark. I would think that senior members at the club would say, hang on, you you keep it away from that, or you've gone overboard there, or we need to reel this in because it is now uh, developing into a life of its own. And I just hope, along the lines of what you just said was, we don't get officials trying to distract attention by saying it's the media's fault, uh, we're being picked on, everyone hates Manly. When you win in round two, 54-0, and then in round seven, get beaten 44-10, that's an 84-point turnaround in just over a month. That doesn't happen unless something has gone violently wrong. And if something does go wrong, don't try and smother it or hide it by holding 7 a.m. media conferences because that just doesn't work. Because all you do is draw more attention to yourself, the fact you're actually holding a a 7am media conference in the hope that no journo will turn up at 7am because it's it's outside what is normal journo work hours, given that some journos are working until 10 o'clock or whatever else before the paper, the last edition, goes to bed. 
Des Hasler did this. Back to Des again at the Bulldogs. He got a wrap over the knuckles and a fine for having a crack at the referees. He thought, I'll show the NRL... I'll I'll cut off my nose to spite yeah. my face by holding press conferences in the dingy stairwell underneath Belmore Sports Ground at 7am. I've got a story along those lines. A few years ago when the NRL brought in the rule that coaches had to speak pre-game, Wayne Bennett was lined up to speak and I was meant to do it. And Wayne let me know in no uncertain terms he's not doing it. I said, it's NRL rules. He said, don't whinge. I said, I'm not whinging, but when a senior coach like you doesn't speak, no one will speak and the ultimate people to suffer will be the viewers and the consumers of the game. Uh, the following weekend, we approached Wayne again for a pre-game interview. He had had some uh, admonishment very light-handed from the NRL, and he agreed to do it in Newcastle at 7am. Our producer heard about that and said, that's ridiculous, we're not going to do it, and he told me, and I said, I wish you'd told me. I would have driven up, I would have sat down at 7am, and I would have interviewed Wayne Bennett, probably for about 90 minutes, because if you're going to play that game, Wayne, I'm going to come too, I'm going to be there at 7 o'clock and do it. Yep. We never got a chance to go down that line, but you know, the old 7am Press conference, it's an old tactic. And if you're trying to sell the game, which everybody is, and crowds, you know, well, the crowds haven't been too bad in 2018, but crowds always get compared to the AFL and to other sports. And if you can't draw a crowd, you need to do everything in your pos- in your power to possibly get people to come and watch you play by getting all the publicity you can. Mm-hmm. And 7 a.m. media conference, conferences don't help you get publicity and they don't help you draw a crowd. And then when you do actually hold a press conference at a reasonable hour in normal working media hours, and then journalists start asking questions of the players you put up, don't stand there and say, hey, you can't ask that. We've, we've had enough of that, which is mm. Trent went down this line a bit yesterday as well. And I can understand what he's thinking because he's probably had a gut full of the whole situation. But if you put players up to be interviewed... The journos are going to ask about the hottest topic in your club. That's just the way it is. And people want to know about it because, trust me, they're clicking on websites and they're reading papers to see what the story is, at whether it's my club or a club I'm interested in or just a story I'm interested in. They want to know. Don't try and hide the players at 7am or then say, no, you can't ask him that question. It's a democracy they're open to be questioned about whatever the journos feel is, is warranted, and as long as they're reasonable. And I think in this situation, given the story is as big as it is, questions about Jackson Hastings and how it affects the team, when you're talking to members of the team, are reasonable questions. Was you, you've summed it up perfectly. And you know who else is going to get some attention over the coming week? A bloke by the name of Sam Burgess, who was dynamic for South Sydney on the weekend. I marvelled at his performance. I agreed with the co-commentators, Danny Baderis, Mick Ennis. He's the best forward in the game right now. Just back from a two-week suspension, unfortunately for Sam and South Sydney fans, not to mention rugby league fans, I suppose, he's looking at another two-week suspension. Uh, was I know what my thoughts are on this. Would you have sent him off for that tackle on Aiden Caesar? Remembering that Aiden jumped straight back to his feet. 100%. I'm with you. I thought he should have been sent off. And here's another element to that. I thought it was a great chance for the referees to say, you know what? We can send Sam here. He's played a big game. He's going to cop a suspension anyway. The game is decided. We're not affecting the game. But we are showing to everybody that if you attack the head of an opponent, you will be sent off. And that is a line that could have been drawn in the sand. But still now, we've got the Sia Soliola incident. We've got the Sam Burgess contact on Caesar, and any number of incidents where the question has to be asked, if they're not sent off on that occasion, when will the game ever 
have a send-off again. And further to that, Canberra were without Jared Croker for 10 minutes for a tackle from behind that was safe momentarily late but ruled to be denying uh, Souths a try-scoring opposition, therefore professional foul into the bin. Yet Sam almost takes Aiden's head off and stays on the field until Anthony Seabold says, this is all getting a bit crazy, let's get Sam off. Yeah, that was a good move by the coach, no doubt about that. Um, It was always going to be the case that when we started, again, sort of ramping up professional fouls and sin bidding of professional fouls, that at some point it was going to be compared to foul play and players staying on the field. And it was pretty ridiculous, wasn't it, when you have Jared Croker, who barely, you know, it was the softest professional foul I think we'll see all season, and then to have Sam Burgess do what he did but is allowed to stay on the field. It just doesn't match up in the eyes of the fans. That has to be addressed. How Sam stayed on the field, I don't know, because I thought it was a pretty obvious send-off. The massive issue for Sam now is he has two prior similar offences for high tackles, which is now 100% loading. He also has two prior non-similar offences. Each of those is 20% loading. So once Sam gets back on the field after this suspension, and he will be suspended... um, he has 140% loading on any charge that he gets from this point on. And it will only get worse if he gets charged again. And there's a lot of football to be played between now and the end of this season. So to give you an example, the grade two careless high tackle he got charged for, 150 points. 100% of that, again, is now 300 points. And another 40 over the top of that. Sam's looking at 360 points for his next Grade 2 careless high tackle. So basically, every time he slips up, anything above a Grade 1 suddenly becomes a 3, if not 4, if not 5-week suspension should he transgress again between now and the finals. It's a really tough position, and you have to wait two years from the point of that offence taking place before it's wiped from the loading. So... He's, got a, he's on eggshells now for a long way to come. And let's make it really clear for people listening to this. We are not bashing Sam Burgess. We love his physicality. We love the aggression he brings to an aggressive game. What we are saying is, Sam, you've got to tread carefully. You've got to get it right. Mick Ennis, a few minutes ago, said to me, we love Sam Burgess, but we don't want him to spend more than four games a year suspended. You know, that, that's the level in my mind, that we can accept that Sam's going to sit out each season if I'm Anthony Seabold, according to McInnes. Well, as you've just touched on, he's going to be up to four weeks, and anything further during this season, it's seven to ten, and that is crippling South Sydney's campaign. And the question then has to be asked, is Sam, by virtue of his physical, aggressive style of play, ultimately signing his NRL death warrant like Adrian Morley did? Let's draw a line between the two Englishmen. Uh, actually, Sam has been charged more than Adrian Morley. Adrian Morley charged 11 times. Sam now 13, once exonerated. But here's the difference. Sam's been suspended for eight weeks, about to become 10. Whereas Adrian, 11 charges, 11 suspensions, and 26 weeks out of the game. (laughs) The last of them being seven weeks for kneeing Corey Hughes in the chest. And that was his last parting gift to the NRL. So... There's still a way for Sam to go to be in Adrian Morley territory in terms of you know, strike rate and, and time on the sideline, but it has to be drawn that he's starting to enter that realm. That was a curious one too. In a game, as you mentioned, they lead comfortably. He didn't need to be coming out of the line and looking to put that sort of hit 
on the halfback to really make a statement. You know, it's an aggressive game. You play it the way you play it. But he just went too far, quite obviously, right there. I just don't know what he was thinking to get himself into that position where he could make that mistake um, with his arms sort of swinging in that upward direction. He was always going to make contact with Aiden Caesar's head. And I don't know off the back of it why Ricky Stewart felt that he had to go into the into the media conference and have a bit of a crack, I guess, at Sam in a way, having seen Sam talk about um, Josh Morris laying down when Sam got suspended a couple of weeks ago for that raised, what was perceived to be a raised forearm and contacting Josh Morris in the neck. You know, that wasn't Ricky's fight. So no. why, why Ricky felt compelled to go in there and have a bit of a crack at Sam about that, having had a crack at Josh Morris, I don't know. Um, I thought Ricky at 2-5 and five with the Raiders record had bigger fish to fry. I can understand Ricky wanting to get something off his chest there. I was sidelined when that elbow went into Josh Morris's throat. And I did not think for a second that he milked that. I no. thought he was genuinely injured and he then spent three days barely able to eat. It... it might have been accidental contact and it mightn't have been intentional, but the bottom line is he wasn't acting. He wasn't auditioning for Hollywood. He was no. genuinely hurt and Sam was off the mark he to was. insinuate that, that Josh was acting there. And further to that, interesting that Aiden Caesar bounced straight back to his feet after having every reason to stay down and milk a, a, a different outcome. Had he stayed down, I've got no doubt oh, Sam gets sent. For sure. But because he bounced straight back, he actually saved Sam from being sent off and uh, you know the final say on this is at the end after full time a long delay because Sam was interviewed by Fox Sports he then sought out Aiden Caesar went a long way to go over and shake his hands off camera away from attention most of the people had left or were leaving so that was a nice act by Sam you know I don't think he was trying to do it to uh, improve his fate at the judiciary it was just to show care and concern and maybe apologize to Aiden Caesar that's the sort of bloke that Sam is anybody who's met him uh, knows him a little bit knows what a tremendous character he is and a man of character great character mm. and he would have been genuinely remorseful that he'd ended up you know clocking Aiden Caesar around the melon there's no doubt about that um, the Tigers and the Knights the Knights coming back, let's move on from uh, what happened in that game that you called at Central Coast Stadium, just back to Scully Park for a moment. The Tigers, that, that comeback, they did it so well in the beginning of the second half, even despite losing Benji Marshall at one point to a, an HIA himself. But the Knights showed so much character without Mitchell Pearce at the back end of the game. What does this mean for the Knights now, having got past the Tigers, they've got themselves in the top eight with a four-win and three-loss record, but they now know for the, at least... At least the next three months, Mitchell Pearce isn't available. Was I reckon a lot of people would have been saying, I could see Newcastle scraping into eighth, maybe seventh, you know, being right around the edge of the eight after your 25 rounds, your 24 games, but not anymore. Without Mitchell Pearce, that's, I think, Makes the death hard, knell for the Knights. And uh, just to underline how important Mitch Pearce has been to them so far, he leads the Dally M count with 11 points in front of Luke Brooks, 10, Kalen Pong at 10, then Jai Arrow from the from the Titans, interestingly. But back to Mitch Pearce, you know, it's a big opportunity, I suppose, if you're looking for a positive for a Brock Lamb, a Jack Cogger, Connor Watson almost back as well. But but for me, that's the difference between making the eight and missing the eight, missing Mitch Pearce for three months. Yeah, it's a cruel blow. And uh, it was great to see Mitch Pearce, given everything that happened at the Roosters and the way he left with Cooper Cron coming and didn't want to stay there to play hooker or be an understudy or play 5-8 or however it was going to work in the Roosters' eyes uh, under Cooper Cronk there. And 
He'd made an immediate difference to the Newcastle Knights given the roster that Nathan Brown had assembled around him. Such a positive feel-good story for the league in 2018 with those teams from the bottom of the table all moving into the top eight and some of them beyond in the case of the Tigers and the Warriors in particular. Um, it's a real shame. As you consider games that you're preparing to call was and possible scenarios and talking points, would you ever have imagined that you would be calling, I know it was Brenton on this occasion, Jamie Bura kicking across field, and the bomb being taken by Sean Kenny Dowell to score the match winner. Remarkable. He has had his moments, hasn't he, in recent times, the great SKD. Boy, um, you know, he, he's, he can do that. He, he is rocks or diamonds, and he was diamonds at the end when he had to be. Tremendous leap over the top of the Tigers defenders to come down with the ball and plant it down. Um, yeah, and he's he's a great character in the game. Yeah. Boy, he's a different different cat. He, you know, the way he brings it back and can just drop the ball out of nowhere or get hit on the chest by a kickoff or just leave one he should have caught. Or, or can, race away in Golden Point to win a final. That's you know. right. Or, you know, he can make 14 great carries out of his own end, but then suddenly put one down that puts them under pressure and they lose the game somehow. Um, that's just the way it rolls with SKD. But it was great to see him, after having a couple of moments just recently, come up with yeah. a, a tremendous catch. And what a reaction. I mean, it was fantastic, the reaction in the crowd and the, his Newcastle teammates mobbing him. It was terrific to see. And Bura kicking. Yeah, that shocked me. Uh, apparently, the bench was shouting to pass, pass, pass. But Jamie, who says, I've done a bit of kicking practice, thought, no, I'll back my hoof. And it was good. Oh, it was cronk-like. Mm. You couldn't lob it on the spot any better than what Jamie Bura did. Perfect weight. Just into the end goal, gave SKD the chance to get up above them, and Sean Kenny Dow did the rest. I'm going on record, that is the first and only time Jamie Bura is ever, ever going to be likened to Cooper Cronk, but good luck to him. He might well be playing in the halves, maybe Jamie Bura, yep. from this point on, he might be, maybe he's the 5'8". He whether, has, he has whether Cogger takes there, over as the first receiver and plays a bit of halfback, but Jamie Bura has played a little bit of 5'8 in his time at the Seagulls, he's filled in there a couple of times, so um, you just don't know. Um, moving on to something completely different and on a sad note, of course, at the end of last week, last Thursday, we had the very sad news that the great Channel 9 commentator um, from the 80s and into the 90s, Daryl Eastlake, had passed away after a long battle with illness. Um, and you know, every time this happens, whether it be Richie Benno or Daryl Eastlake or others who have sadly passed away, um, you sit back and reflect and going back through the vision and seeing the, the hearing the calls of Daryl uh, from Origin and on Thursday night after Matty Johns' show, we played the first game of the 1987 State of Origin series and Daryl's call along with Ian Maurice and Jack Gibson. What a commentary trio that was. And, you know, really took you back in time and what a fun time it was to be a young bloke just watching a bit of footy and having Daryl really change the way, I guess, football commentary had been up until that point. Nobody had really been as effusive and outgoing as, as Daryl was. Um, was he an influence in any way on your career, or did he help shape your career? Or you know, who are the influences that have shaped your commentary career? When I was a young bloke, my mum had a terrible car, a red Sigma. It was a shocker, but you know what? It had a bloody good radio, <laughs> and I used to go out there every Saturday and Sunday afternoon and listen to as much footy as I could. Often broadcast by Zorba and Hollywood, the mm-hmm. Decibel duo. Yep. And along the same lines, Daryl Eastlake brought that to Origin. Yep. You know, everything was up. And so my approach to, to commentary is that you, you respect the players and the performers you're calling and you want, to, uh, you want them and their abilities to be enjoyed in a fun, exciting and informative way. 
And if the viewer switches off the radio or television and thought, I really enjoyed that performance by Player X and, and, and I really enjoyed the game, but I've got no idea who told me about it. I've sort of done my job. Fun, exciting, informative. I reckon Daryl Eastlake ticked all those boxes. You know, how often would we be excited about watching weightlifting, really? You know, if there was an Aussie involved, you'd watch. But when Daryl's calling, you couldn't help but watch. You didn't want to turn off. Surf lifesaving, a sport I've had a bit to do with and love, I can understand he brought the same to that. Not a real high profile, but all of a sudden you couldn't leave it. There was a ripple coming in, not a wave, a ripple. And you had to watch how the surf boat handled it or whatever. And then Origin, you know, Daryl Eastlake, the huge call. It, it, it is. It's part of your upbringing as a, as a sports fan and ultimately sports broadcaster. You can't help but go back and think, wow, Daryl led the way in that regard. And I, I think you know, when you have that such a high-profile position and you go back to the 80s when he was at his element, of course, when Channel 9 had State of Origin, they had nothing else at the time. They didn't have Rugby League. Channel 10 had... What was at that stage the Australian Rugby League competition, uh, pretty much the Sydney competition with, you know, the, the Steelers and the Raiders thrown in. Um, before that time, commentators didn't call the way Daryl called. It was much more subdued. And I think you know, if you go back, if you had drew a timeline of commentary of rugby league in this country, Daryl Eastlake doing what he did changed the way everybody thought about what rugby league commentary should be. Even Rabbits, when he was calling back in the old days in the 70s, the Amco Cup on Wednesday nights, you go back and listen to his calls then to what they became. I've got no doubt that Rabbits, who, you know, his commentary would have changed off the back of listening to Daryl Eastlake. Now, he mightn't have been impersonating Daryl Eastlake, but what was expected of commentators and the way rugby league was called, I have no doubt, was greatly influenced by Daryl. Yeah, not necessarily conscious of it, but just letting it happen because of what Daryl had been doing uh, to such applause. And, you know, today when we're in a commentary box was we're told that the co-commentator should match the caller's excitement at a try. You know, you don't want us up here after a blinding Greg Inglis runaway try, then your co-caller to come in four or five levels down. And, and thankfully at Fox League, they do a superb job, all yeah. of them. But interestingly, Daryl Eastlake and Jack Gibson, that was a difference. You know, the booming, huge call of Daryl Eastlake, who was excited to see a can of Coke open in the crowd, as opposed to the dry, laconic Jack Gibson, who came in with three or four very pertinent words, but at a totally different level. It worked. And in today's arena... Jack probably would have been told to, Jack, you've got to lift a bit. You've got to, you've got to get up a bit. <laughs> no doubt, let me tell you. <laughs> Although he was such a, a revered figure in the game that, you know, maybe he wouldn't have been. Maybe they just go, well, you know, if suddenly say, let's, Wayne Bennett gives up coaching at the end of this season and Craig Bellamy takes over as the yeah. Brisbane Broncos coach. It's not beyond the realms of possibility that Wayne Bennett could be sitting in a commentary box beside you, Matthew Russell. Right. Well, and I'm prepared to say that nobody would tell Wayne Bennett, "Hey, Wayne, can you pump it up a little <laughs> bit? You're a bit flat." Uh, I would contact the esteemed David Hill, and I've read stories that he used to roll up the Courier Mail, stand behind Daryl Eastlake, and when Daryl went off a bit early, he used to bonk him on the head with a rolled up Courier Mail. <laughs> I don't know whether that is myth or truth, but I had a chuckle as I read that story somewhere in the media after Daryl's uh, passing, and I'd get that Courier Mail and hand it to our producer behind Wayne and say, every time Wayne's a bit down, just bonk him on the head and give him one for good measure for me. <laughs> uh, it would be something. You just never say never in this industry. The big head. Bonk what? him on the big head. Wayne Bennett on the big head. Wayne Bennett in commentary in a future role. Could happen. 
You just never know. If, if it happens, you heard it here first. Speaking of big occasions, we have one coming up quite obviously uh, in a couple of days' time. This podcast recorded on Monday. On Wednesday, it's the 25th of April, Anzac Day. Our thoughts will be with those who served, those who are currently still serving around the world, those who paid the ultimate sacrifice, um, those who were affected by those situations over a number of actions, including the World Wars, quite obviously. And Rugby League, after going a bit over the top, uh, the 100th anniversary of Anzac Day a couple of years ago when we tried to play too many games. Um, we're back to the two games, one in the afternoon, the now traditional Dragons and Roosters, followed in Melbourne by the Storm and the Warriors. And I think like the AFL, Rugby League as a code has got it exactly right with the way they pay respect on Anzac Day. It's a, it's a great privilege to be a part of those two games. Was perfectly said. I think that both codes are magnificent on that day. We all get edgy. Uh, before we call a game, I don't mind admitting that calling on Anzac Day, I'm really nervous because you, you realise that the words that you say uh, and the way that you call the game has to be reflective of the wonderful day that it is where you celebrate, and I'm, I'm using celebrate, the efforts of men and women past, present and future who have served this country, often paying the ultimate sacrifice. And, and you don't want to do anything, anything, to detract from that with a poorly chosen phrase or a poorly chosen word, you, you want it to be perfect for them. And, and, and when I called a couple of games in Melbourne in recent years, I was really, really yeah, nervous, careful, prepared. Uh, uh, you, know, you, you don't want to say anything wrong. What, what about you on, on Anzac Day? It's funny, I, um, on Michael Ennis' show, the greatest just um, last week, they were playing an Anzac Day game as one of um, the highlights that Mick was taking through and I called this particular game between the Dragons and the Roosters, and I was listening to McCall, and I thought, I can tell in my voice there's a certain... I'm at a level there, not over-the-top you know, excitement, speaking of Daryl Eastlake, as we were a moment ago, but I could just tell there's a reverence there that I had for that game and that occasion that perhaps isn't there normally. Not that I'm you know, slacking off or just mailing it no. in week to week, you know, doing two or three games every weekend of the season, but... It was interesting that I heard that back, and that was you know three or four years ago now. Um, and I was like, wow, yeah, I can just sort of tell that there's something a bit different about Anzac Day, and quite obviously there is. I'm calling the Storm and the Warriors on uh, Wednesday night down there at Amy Park, and the, the, the ceremony beforehand is terrific under in the darkness. with The stadium pitch black, apart from the spotlights on, on those reading the ode and playing the last post, and then there's the vision or the, the images on the, the grandstand of the players uh, in respectful poses around Amy Park itself. It's a great occasion, and you can't help but feel up for that off the back of it. It's, it's great to be part of. Very privileged. It's one of those days of the year that you always look forward to being a part of. I used the word celebrate a few moments ago, and I should make clear... We're not celebrating, or I'm not celebrating war. I'm not celebrating the loss of life. I suppose I should have substituted with honour. You are celebrating the sacrifice that so many men and women in this country have made. And, and, and that's the point that I wanted to really make clear. We're not celebrating anything about war. We are honouring uh, and celebrating their efforts in serving this country so magnificently. And on Anzac Day around sport, you just want to get it right. And if you go onto the ADF website, which I do at this time every year to see where Australians are still in action around the world. And now it's not, most of it isn't um, as far as, you know, live action is concerned. We're not out there in the trenches as such as we were in previous world wars or whether it be Korea or Vietnam. But 
there are Australians serving you know, in the Middle East, in, in different parts of the world, right around the world, and while they might not be out there every day, you know, firing guns over the top of trenches or in helicopters or planes firing at enemy as such, um, they're never too far away from danger. It's, you know, it's, it's such a tough business to be in and we're forever grateful for what they do for us. Yeah, because, uh, you know, in the States, it's a real tradition and increasingly so that you, if you see a service man or woman, you thank them for their service. Yes. We don't do that in Australia, but, but Anzac Day is a day where we really can do that and, and I hope it spills out to doing it more than just, just Anzac Day. So, on to the games themselves. The Dragons and the Roosters kick things off, of course, at Allianz Stadium. There will be a full house for this one. If there's not, I'll be stunned because the Dragons at 6-1 and one deserve a full house. The Roosters have some issues. They won against the Bulldogs six points to nil and potentially, it depends on how you see it, Trent Barrett said, that one was one for the purists. A lot of people aren't, maybe they are purists, but they thought, Trent, you're trying to gild the lily a little bit there. That wasn't much of a game. The Roosters, I think, are big outsiders against the Dragons. I think the Dragons will get the cash. I agree. The only thing I would say that on Anzac Day, you almost throw form out the window. I reckon it's a toss of the coin in both these Anzac Day games because of the occasion, because of uh, everything that goes on around it. Dragons on form, just. I've seen the Storm and the Warriors uh, a number of times now. I've caught a bunch of those games over the, the past decade or so. I've seen the Warriors be overcome, I think, sometimes by the occasion. I've seen them play out of their skins as well and upset the Storm, who have been um, the best team on average over the past 15 years in the NRL. The Warriors, I think, I think the Warriors can get the cash here. I think they can just sneak home, and that would be a big upset given the Storm have bounced back in a good way the last couple of weeks, quite obviously. I think the Warriors are playing outstanding football. I know where you're coming from, and you called them last weekend. Big crowd support too for the Warriors in Melbourne but the Storm I, I watched them against Brisbane I love their attack I'm at Melbourne for me yeah Melbourne I think have turned a corner I wouldn't mind thinking that they're going to go on a bit of a run now the Storm there's one game on Thursday this week the Bunnies and the Broncos the Bunnies quite obviously will be without Sam Burgess you would imagine um, the Broncos have a bit to prove they are up and down um, at times in the game against Melbourne they were pretty good they got themselves back within range Anthony Milford scores a try of absolute pure rugby league genius, and then five minutes later, he's a dunce because he lets the ball bounce in the in goal, doesn't pay it due attention, and Melbourne sneak under his guard and score a try that helped them seal that win. There's just too many question marks still hanging over the halves for Brisbane, and even without Sam Burgess, I think the Rabbitohs are playing good enough footy that they can uh, they can win this one. No Burgess for the Rabbitohs, but no McCulloch for the Broncos. That's yeah. a huge out. And Thomas and George, they've recaptured form. So the Rabbitohs, who've won four of their last five now. They are playing some pretty good football, and they looked that way in the preseason as well. They're finally with Greg Inglis getting better and better and such a weapon on that left edge. Uh, they've got some points in them down that side. The Seagulls and the Knights. This is the 6 o'clock game on the Friday. I'm calling this one. I have no idea what to expect out of Manly. At some point, I guess they will bounce back and potentially be the team that we saw earlier in the season, but I think there's just way, way too much happening there for them. But they are playing the Knights, and as we discussed, without Mitchell Pearce. But the Knights, I think you can know what you're going to get out of them a lot more than you do out of Manly at the moment. Even without Mitchell Pearce... I'm going to tip the Knights in this one. Yeah, I'd go Eagles just on the lotto land factor and no Mitch Pearce. Uh, that's the first leg 
of uh, Friday was. I'm then looking after Penrith Bulldogs, Penrith at Panthers Stadium, and the Dogs, who last start 60% of possession, 60% of territory, and 52 tackles to 14 in the opposition 20, and couldn't score a point. So it has to be Penrith for me. Yeah, until they can score and score more regularly, I don't think they can beat the Panthers up there at Penrith on uh, Friday night. Quickly through the remaining games, the Titans and the Sharks. The Titans out of form at the moment. The Sharks battered and bruised as they were yesterday in that win over the Panthers. The Sharks for mine. Yeah, and I'll go on to uh, Cowboys. I agree with you on the Cronulla front. Uh, Raiders Saturday night. Geez, the Cowboys. Wins a win, but unimpressively against the Raiders. North Queensland at home. I'll go with them. Yeah, I'm with you there. And we finish it on Sunday afternoon, the Eels and the Tigers. The Tigers got the better of the Eels already this season at the same venue on Easter Monday. The Eels bouncing back. You've got to take it with a grain of salt, potentially because it was against Manly, and Manly are just awful at the moment. I think the Tigers can win this one. I like their form line a bit better than the Eels, who are just one and six. Go, Gutho, go. I reckon that the Eels with Clint Gutherson back and doing what he did on the weekend can have a little run. Let's hope for the sake of the league and not to mention Eels fans that they can come back into contention and breathe some life into their 2018 campaign. I reckon they can inflict consecutive losses on the Tigers. We'll see how it turns out. That is the show for this week. Maddie. thank you for that. Uh, Enjoy uh, Wednesday and Anzac Day and likewise out there if you're going to the games this week. Um, pay your respects uh, in the morning and then enjoy the footy on Anzac Day afternoon and in round seven, or round eight rather. Boy, season goes fast, doesn't yeah. it? That's the, that's the third of the way through the season was. It is. 24 games for each side. Yeah, wow. Cool. It is racing along. Thank you for listening. That has been Take Me Now. I have seen you before.